Queer Here, Queer There is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Ganyakahaga people, a site that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hey everyone, I'm Noah, I go by he and him, and welcome to the last episode of Queer Here, Queer There, for now. If you missed the previous episodes in part one on the history of queer spaces in Montreal, and the future of queer spaces, and the first episode of part two on mental health and loneliness, I first recommend you go back and listen to them, especially the second episode of part one, which I am very, very proud of. Uh, But if you did miss them or you're new to the podcast, here's a little bit of background about myself as well as the podcast more generally. Uh, So I'm a recent graduate from McGill, and I'm working for the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness this summer. SCSC is an emerging nonprofit that seeks to build a sense of community, connection, and belonging for all, but especially for communities that have historically faced great challenges of isolation, so refugees, older people, indigenous groups, people with disabilities, and youth, to name a few. We do this by engaging in research partnerships to highlight community approaches and policy interventions to overcome social isolation, and by spearheading community events and advocacy to raise awareness about the manifestations of social isolation and what individuals can do to make a change. As part of SCSE, as a research fellow, basically investigating everything that has to do with queer space and isolation, and this podcast is product of that research to make the research accessible to everyone that's listening. I'm also working in collaboration with Our Place Sustainable Developments, which is a planning firm that is based in the United Kingdom, and they do a bunch of really cool placemaking and urban design that focuses on community-focused design. Just to give everyone a heads up, this podcast primarily focuses on queer issues which may be sensitive to some people, and I discuss sex pretty freely, so keep that in mind if you're listening around children or in public. So for the last episode, we had my friend Georgia on the podcast to discuss everything related to coming out with a focus on mental health, isolation, and loneliness in the queer community. And we had a pretty raw conversation about the struggles we both had with these topics, with the aim of hopefully iterating that we as queer people often feel alone, but we do have ways of getting back in touch and rooting ourselves in our community to combat that. So this episode is going to focus on the heritage or the historic preservation of queer spaces. And that sounds boring and bland, and I, but I promise this is not going to be another history lesson. But it is a con- pretty contentious issue, and who gets to decide what history is, everything like that. We're going to tackle all of that. The roadmap of this episode, we're going to have a bit of a recap and a synthesis of all the episodes of the podcast so far to set the scene, and then I'm going to give a background on heritage, what the process for heritage is, why it's important, uh, and what's been done so far. And we're also going to be hearing from David Rayside. So David Rayside is the former founding director of the Bonham Center for Sexual Diversity Studies at the University of Toronto from 2004 to 2008. Uh, But he's been a longtime activist as well as an academic. He was also a member of the Right to Privacy Committee, which was formed in response to police raids on gay bathhouses in Toronto. He was a member of the Body Politic, which is a prominent and influential LGBT magazine. And he was also part of the campaign to add sexual orientation to the Ontario Human Rights Code, as well as the co-founder of the Positive Space Campaign at UFT. In 2014, he was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, and we will be hearing from him throughout the podcast. For this episode, I also spoke with Ken Lusbader. Ken is the co-director of the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project, a heritage organization based in New York City that aims to document, preserve, and promote LGBT historic sites around the five boroughs. Since the project has started, the project has successfully nominated five sites to the New York State and National Register of Historic Places and secured Landmarks Preservation Commission designation of six LGBT historic sites and reached over 600 middle and high school students through in-classroom presentations in New York City public schools and more. So just to give a summary of the previous episodes and what's been talked about and some of the most poignant things that have been said. So in episode one, I basically gave a rundown of 
the history of queer Montreal. So we talked about the first gay establishment potentially in North America, the formation of North America's largest gay village that derived from two other villages downtown, and we kind of just went through the big old history, kind of set the scene for the second episode. So the second episode, we talked about digital queer spaces and kind of the future of queer spaces, discussing the three main factors that are affecting queer spaces around the world. So gentrification, the rising acceptance of queer people, and technology, and specifically Grindr. And we talked a lot about how Grindr and other dating apps fit into the queer community. And we heard from Walt Odets, who is a psychologist and practicing psychotherapist based in Berkeley, as well as Andrew London, who wrote a book about online dating and Grindr, about what they think the future of queer spaces is and how the queer community has changed due to these three factors. For the last episode, so the first episode of part two, we focused on loneliness, isolation, and mental health in the queer community, especially within the process of coming out, a process which basically never ends, and minority stress, and we basically just had a conversation with a really good friend of mine, Georgia. And so now, the last episode, we're going to have a focus on what it takes to preserve queer spaces, what's been done so far to preserve these queer spaces, as well as kind of like the pretty contentious issue of who gets to decide what should be preserved and what shouldn't. We're just going to start off with like a background on historical preservation. I know, again, it sounds boring, but I swear it is pretty contentious. So to start us off, what even is historic or heritage preservation? It's basically mainly a governmental-led endeavor to preserve, conserve, and protect buildings, landscapes, or other artifacts of historical or cultural significance. And it's a huge long process to get something recognized. It can take months or even years. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of research. It takes just, in general, a lot of resources. So it is kind of sidelined for other things, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. In Canada, all levels of government, so federal, provincial, and municipal, can grant special designation to certain sites, landscapes, or artifacts. But a lot of the process to get those designations are actually led by citizen or other groups who submit proposals, mainly due to the fact that the government is kind of out of tune with what matters, and so they aren't really sure, they're kind of leaning it up to people who think that sites or other things are important to nominate those sites and submit proposals. So the laws and regulations behind preservation vary between provinces and municipalities, but in general, once a building is designated as heritage or as culturally significant or anything like that, people who wish to change the building or demolish it altogether can be legally refused. And this is pretty important, right? Like, if you want to save certain aspects of a city from developers, which is pretty hard to do nowadays, so say the West Village in New York City, which has pretty prime real estate, heritage designation can be an effective way to at least slow or stop development, as it signals to developers that any type of development in the area is going to have to consider and put whatever heritage exists there at the forefront, which automatically makes it more expensive for the developer and it obviously takes a lot more time as well. And then there's this whole problematic idea of what can actually be considered heritage in the first place, or whose heritage deserves to be preserved. It's kind of like that saying, history is always written by the winners. Governments and public agencies alike, as well as citizen groups, can choose whose history and whose heritage is publicly recognized, preserved, and promoted. Further, public heritage memorialization costs money and often privileges the history of establishment figures, also known as straight, white, cis males. And that's pretty frightening, right? There are actually people whose job it is to include or exclude certain narratives and cultural histories from public heritage preservation. And in other words, there are people who are legitimizing or delegitimizing historical narratives. And those who are legitimized are, again, those established figures who have always been privileged in history. And David spoke about the problematic nature of this, especially in relation to queer activism. It's also, as you would know, contested 
internally to LGBT uh, within LGBT communities there and and quite properly so I mean we see the contestation over historical memory played out a lot in the United States in the American South in particular we see it certainly in relation to indigenous history here in Canada so uh, there are always going to be some voices that will say that a particular event or a particular organization should not be singled out. Uh, and there's a long history of not wanting to single out individuals or groups or even particular events. So within the community, as within all, almost all activist communities. So it's tricky terrain and there really has to be enough consultation within a community to agree that at least some events are worth memorializing and that the way that those events or that those institutions are described recognizes the full range of people who were involved in them. So we've seen this certainly around Stonewall. That's just how things have to play out. But it's not necessarily going to be an easy road. I think it is, it is actually important. Uh, I mean, we always, all, every generation, I think, is guilty of underappreciating what work was done by earlier generations. A lot of people in my generation thinks that that's distinctively true of people younger than I am, but that's not true uh, when some of us were cutting our activist teeth in the 1960s. I don't think we knew a hell of a lot about activist work that had been done in the 1950s. And of course, this is super problematic, and it shouldn't come to a surprise that most often, the heritage that is deemed as worth saving mainly conserves itself with the history of post-colonial Canada, aka white, straight, cis men, again. And the statistics reflect this. In terms of just LGBTQ heritage and history, which has existed long before the country of Canada or the US, all 1,000 plus federally recognized heritage sites in Canada there are none that are dedicated to LGBTQ heritage, even though around 3-5% to of the population identifies as LGBTQ in Canada. It's probably higher in reality, but that's kind of a low ball. In the US, it's a little bit better, but not by much. Uh, so there are 14 listed heritage sites or national historic monuments that are explicitly protected for their heritage importance for queer history out of, get this, 90,000 heritage sites nationwide. So 14 out of 90,000. That being said, I could only find one site in Canada that was provincially recognized, dedicated specifically to queer heritage. And it was at the University College at the University of Toronto, where a plaque was erected in 2011 as part of a proposal from the Bonham Centre for Sexual Diversity Studies to recognize the creation of the UFT Homophile Association in 1969, which is one of the first queer activist organizations in Canada. And the origin of the UTHA lies in an advertisement in the UFT student newspaper that was placed by Gerald Moldenhauer, who worked on campus and would later establish the Glad Day bookstore, which still exists today. And David was actually a key player in getting this plaque. And David led me through this process and told the story of how this plaque came to be. So here's his story. When I uh, was first becoming active as a gay man in the late 70s and through the 80s and 90s and 2000s, I realized, and I suppose I didn't know this beforehand, but I realized that a lot of quite important activism had started relatively early on at the University of Toronto, including a long history of student-centered activism uh, that really extended over decades. And then I, I also knew that uh, very early on in what we might call the liberationist phase of LGBT politics, a student group, well, a group had formed, it wasn't just students, it was students and staff, 
had formed at the University of Toronto. And as I learned and read more about it, I realized that it was the first, the first liberationist group in Ontario and quite possibly the first liberationist group in Canada. So formed at the end of 1969, quite early on. This was very much a liberationist group. It was important to mark that. We weren't trying to particularly lionize the role of university college, but to say that there was a long and distinguished history of activism around sexual diversity at the university, and this was worth honoring at a provincial level. I was extremely busy when this idea first came to me, but I would air it to various colleagues, including some senior administrators at the University of Toronto, and everyone thought it was a totally fabulous idea. So when I eventually did have a little bit more time, in fact, I think when I stepped down as director of the Bonham Center, by then I had some indirect connections to the Ontario Heritage Trust. And they told me, what I think I could have figured out anyway, that you needed the university to propose it, uh, because it's their land, <laughs> um, apart from anything else. And uh, also, it, it made sense politically to have the university on board. I was also told that because it would be an institutional sponsorship, um, the trust would be more than grateful for a certain monetary contribution to cover the cost of uh, preparing the plaque, launching it, installing it, and so on. So I prepared uh, with the help of a colleague and friend of mine who is uh, worked at the University of Toronto Library and also was a volunteer for the Canadian Lesbian Gay Archives, who knew a huge amount about early LGBT history in this country. So I worked up a proposal to the university and then basically said to the university, I'll do all the work or we will do all the work preparing the documentation. It wasn't hugely challenging. And then the proposal, I was pretty sure that the province had never designated a LGBT specific project for the provincial plaque program. So I knew that this was, and that was part of my pitch, that this was the first of its kind and, you know, at some level represented a much wider range of activist endeavors across the province. We then submitted all of that to the Heritage Trust, and also informally I had gotten the sense that the Trust was very interested in this. So eventually, I don't know how long it took, but it wasn't unduly long, they approved it, and then they assigned an historian who I didn't know, I think a graduate student, in fact, at York University, who then set about to do uh, work, and then there were still some people who had been involved in that first uh, set of meetings, around and they were keen the trust and its historian drafted the text so then we had decided that we were going to have a big launch event and then um, a, a couple of people from the trust and a couple of us including me took the plaque out to where the university had already arranged for its installation location and so i actually got to with an allen wrench attach the plaque to the stand so that's the story the actual process, especially if it is a citizen-led process or led by public agencies, takes a lot of time and research, which makes it hard for public interest to be considered in heritage preservation, as it would take dedicated and well-funded citizen groups to actually push the proposal through. And David talked about how this type of preservation is often sidelined in activist circles. But you're, you know, you're right, or at least your own experience reflects a problem or a challenge, and that is that there aren't many activists who think that this is important. They're seized by issues in the here and now, and at some level, 
they should be. And it's always, it's sort of like, this is a bit trivializing and I, probably a bad metaphor. I was going to say it's sort of like filing, right? You leave it uh, when you have nothing else to do or when you think there's such a mess that you have to clean it up. So working on an historical project doesn't seem urgent. It always is. This, and, and that was true in my case. I, I couldn't manage it. And I really, I mean, I was working impossible hours and under impossible stress all the time. But it took a certain slackening of, in my schedule to be able to do it. And also, you know, in, in Quebec, as here, uh, in Quebec, you'd be dealing with a provincial office, right? And lots of people don't know how to do that. And, you know, it, the formal process might be very complicated. And for lots, of, I have no idea what it is. In, in, in Ontario, it might look a bit complicated. But when you look at the form, in fact, it's not hugely complicated. It's not a walk in the park either. But there'd be lots of activists who would who don't have any experience with the kind of preservationist side of the Ministry of Culture. I don't know whether it'd be the Ministry of Culture in Quebec, but that can be a bit daunting. And they'd say, well, I don't even know. And it is important in these things, in my view, but this is always the way I've worked, to talk to real people and to get a real one-on-one conversation about what the process looks like and what the province, the provincial agency looks for. Well... Just lots of activists don't have either the interest, the skill, or the patience to do that. So, you know, it does require a small group, a very small group, but it has to include at least someone who knows the historical stuff to come to an idea of what should be memorialized and then work up a proposal that isn't just on the back of an envelope. And Ken echoed this when we spoke a bit about the challenge of recognizing LGBT heritage and the difficulties he and his team have faced with documenting sites for their project in New York City. Here he is. I mean, one of the challenges is that, you know, the study of LGBT history to begin with is relatively new field of inquiry from the 1970s. You know, the study of LGBT place-based history or LGBT heritage is really, you know, I was working as a student in 92 and 93 independently, not even knowing there were other people in New York looking at place-based history related to LGBT, you know, heritage. Um, And when I proposed my thesis topic, it was sort of laughed at because what are you talking about? So I'm just wondering where people, even friends of mine were when we started the project saying, well, what are you talking about? Isn't Stonewall already, you know, recognized? You're going to just be doing bars. People don't even understand how to conceive of LGBT sites beyond bars. So it's it's an interesting dynamic that people in heritage, people in preservation, don't even understand what the concept is. Um, I mean, the biggest challenge is always documentation. And, you know, what's the paper trail? Did people leave records? Many records were thrown out by the groups themselves, not thinking their organization was necessarily you know, record keeping that they're going to be making history or family members would throw out records either because they didn't think they were important or because of shame. They didn't want anyone's sexual identity being sort of dis- disseminated to the public. Um, I always like to say, you, you know, your, your snapshot is my archival image because it's so important. Um, but structurally, um, in, for example, one of the challenges in New York City is that the, uh, to get a site listed on the state register, which is the first step to getting it listed on the national register, um, the site has to have 
the architectural integrity from the period of significance. So on the outside, it has to have architectural integrity. And on the inside, well, that's really challenging um, when you're dealing with many buildings in New York City that have been altered over time, let alone they're for cultural significance. So the architectural pedigree doesn't really matter. It's more about what happened culturally, historically. We're not recognizing a site for its architectural merits. And the other part is on the interior, uh, that's really challenging. So many spaces have changed. Um, for example, we had Cafe Chino listed on the National Register, um, but the state of New York required that it had interior integrity. Well, it was originally a Cafe Chino. What they did was push away the chairs. Uh, they had a tiny, tiny stage that was a platform that was probably, you know, three feet by three feet. Um, over time, it was a restaurant, and now it is currently a restaurant. So working with the state for integrity, we said, well, it was in the dark, and they pushed away the chairs. So the volume of the space still reflects what it looked like in 1958 to 1968. Another structural challenge in New York State for getting something listed is that we need owner consent. So the, even though getting listed on the state and national register is purely honorific, the owner has to not disagree, and the state enjoys the fact that an owner will support it. So in many cases, people are fearful um, that this comes with regulation or um, that we are going to be you know, doing something to their building, which is not the case. So getting that is quite challenging. And some people may also ask, why does heritage preservation matter? Like, who cares about a plaque outside of a building? What good does that do? Why does it even matter that a building has like a little thing that says, oh, here lies blah, 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 blah. Well, sure, the plaque may be read by like one out of a hundred people that walk by it, but the fact that the government recognizes that a site is important, this act legitimizes historic narratives and establishes that they are of importance to the nation or the state. And while this whole idea is also problematic, I'll let a political science podcast tackle that issue. But specifically, queer heritage is important to recognize as it is an often an invisible history and a history that the vast majority of people do not learn. And like I talked about this in the first episode, I didn't know anything that I talked about in the first episode. Nothing. It was just totally, totally new to me. And especially really historic moments for Canada, including Quebec becoming the second jurisdiction in the world to prohibit discrimination against sexual orientation. Stuff like that is really, really important. And it's not taught in schools. But through heritage memorialization, there could have been a heritage plaque outside of where the raids took place. Something like that could go a long way of educating the public about this. So the queer historian Mark Minke has this to say about historic recognition. In the LGBTQ community, we're discovering who one is and accepting that identity is often challenging surrounding society. Discovering tangible, physical echoes of that identity can underpin queer youth's self-acceptance and reinforce a sense of belonging. In my youth in a small Midwestern town, there was no support and there were no sources of information. There were no queer identified places that would reassure me that I was not a hateful anomaly. Going off of this, many young people growing up continue to struggle as they come to terms with their gender identity and their sexuality, and finding tangible and physical evidence of a queer history in a public place can help affirm their vital connection to a community with a long, long, long past. And it is easy to forget that LGBTQ communities grew out of a marginalized and nearly invisible path, often marked by painful and ugly encounters with police and other institutions. Ken added to this as well by reiterating the importance of queer historical narratives.
for the fact that LGBT history is American history, LGBT history is anyone's history, and it's really important to take that um, narrative out of the closet and convey to people that um, there were rich lives that were being lived, there was oppression, people uh, strategized on how to make connections socially, politically, economically, through jobs, and so forth, and that if you don't know that history, um, you're going to be feeling somewhat isolated, especially with the recent pushback of LGBT rights in the U.S., for example. Uh, there are young activists who want to know, you know, what to do. And if you look back at what ACT UP did with ZAPS, ACT UP looked back at what the Gay Activists Alliance did with ZAPS. You're, you break a level of isolation. The same thing, it's really important for LGBT people, whether you're young or old, that you know you're part of a continuum of history. Um, so we're looking at the physical, tangible benefits of LGBT heritage by saying, if you look in front of a site, you could see it and feel physically connected. And that's the power of preservation, which is used when you go to Mount Vernon or if you go to Mount Rushmore, if you go to the Statue of Liberty, those are all really important sites. And people have a different cognitive connection when you see a physical space related to history. That's the same that could take place with LGBT heritage sites. But at the same time, there's this intangible benefit for people who have a, who are coming out and are can't go to a pride parade or can't go to that site if they want to look at it on the internet or through Instagram, Facebook. The intangible benefits of pride, of identity, of community, continuity of history, to me are really important. So you're creating this holistic way to think about your own identity as part of a bigger world and that you're not alone. Um, and to me, that's, that's really why I'm doing this project. As urban areas grow and change at an astonishing rate, there's an increased need to document and protect history especially the history of communities that have struggled and survived. And here's a bit more on this from my conversation with David. I mean, it is swimming against the stream, of course. As you know, gay communities or clusters of LGBT-related institutions have been, in, in most, the overwhelming majority of cases, fading. And that's partially a function of the fact that the broader cities, well, you know this, the broader cities in which they're located tend to be more open to sexual diversity, so there's a part of it that's a good story, but there is a loss there too, And but it's hard to know whether any institutional development or designation will, will stem that trend. My own guess is it won't, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't be attempts to at least mark out what was accomplished and why. So the development of the village and its earlier incarnation, you know, in the West End, you know, is important for people to remember. In Canada, there really isn't a big movement to improve diversity, especially in terms of queer identities, among heritage preservation efforts. So in Canada, we have something called the National Historic Sites Program, and it's managed by Parks Canada. And there's 979 national historic sites around the country, but if you actually include all of the different sites around Canada that are administered that not just by Parks Canada, the total actually adds up to about 2,300 different sites. From 2000 to 2011, Parks Canada has made quote-unquote significant investments to generate new nominations related to three underrepresented areas in the National Program of Historical Commemoration, 
so indigenous people, women, and ethnocultural communities. And from 2011 to 2016, the Government of Canada approved 66 new national designations that speak to these underrepresented areas. This is amazing, first of all. Like, that work is very, very, very important, obviously. But there's kind of like a glaring hole, right? <laughs> like, the sexuality and gender diverse communities are totally lacking from these quote unquote significant investments, which again undermines our positionality in what is considered Canadian history. And it's, I don't know, like, it, I, it, it's hard for me to comprehend how we can create a definition of underrepresented that includes three groups only and not the wide range of underrepresented groups in Canada. It doesn't really make sense to me, and the fact that there's this glaring hole is pretty significant to me. And it's also significant to me because if you look to the states, which right now does not set a good example for LGBTQ rights, their national parks program actually does include queer identities under the underrepresented areas, so there are actually a lot of grants that are administered to municipalities or other type of agencies that are trying to push for LGBTQ recognition and heritage preservation. And they released a study that I think was like 1,200 pages or something like that, that basically outlines, I think, 400 or 500 different sites, which they are themselves recommending someone puts a proposal for to recognize them. So in the U.S., surprisingly, there's been a lot more done than here in Canada. That being said, in Canada, I was able to find some recognized sites that are queer, but they aren't actually recognized for the fact that they are queer. So for example, there's a church in the village in Montreal called L'Église de Saint-Pierre-Apotre, and it's recognized for its architectural significance because it's basically just an old church, but its designation doesn't allude to the fact that it's the only church in the world dedicated to those who've died due to AIDS through a memorial called the Chapel of Hope. There's another one in Montreal called The Main. So The Main in Montreal is a national historic site, and I talked about this in the first episode, but it's historically been a site of sex work, brothels, strip clubs, everything like that, but it was also some of the places where trans people were first accepted, uh, even marginally. And again, it's not recognized for its queer elements that I discussed in the first episode or for its status as kind of like the red light district but rather for quote the wave of immigrants that settled there and that created a merge and mix of cultures that inspired novelists poets singers and filmmakers and you can you could hear it in my voice i'm very skeptical of this fact because i like i have not heard of any novelists poets singers and filmmakers who have mentioned the main and the fact that the queer history i mean it takes one sentence to recognize the queer history and it's totally erased from this as well i don't know just pisses me off the quebec national assembly passed a motion recognizing the historic status of montreal's gay village but here's the actual language used in the motion this motion that the National Assembly recognizes the special status of Montreal's gay village as a place of refuge and emancipation for Quebec's LGBT plus communities. That the National Assembly recall that the appropriation and investment in this safe space by LGBT plus communities contributes to make homosexuality and transsexuality more visible within Quebec society. That the National Assembly mark and celebrate the village's special vocation as a place where all Quebec LGBT plus communities can feel they belong. So sure, this may seem great. It's like this designation of our provincial legislature, you know, they're having some type of recognition that the village is important. But this is 100% symbolic. There's actually not a real designation. There's no physical marker that designates this in the village. So there's no actual physical visibility to this. It's only for people who like, I don't know, read the minutes from the Quebec National Assembly. But it doesn't protect the village from development. It's all pretty vague. You know, there's no actual real tangible policy in this. So that's A. 
B, it also takes away from recognizing or establishing that there's other sites of importance to the queer population around Quebec. So it's just saying like, oh, the village, it's the only place where queer people are feel like they can belong, you know? It kind of takes away from other sites around the province that might be important for queer people, including just in Montreal as well. And now C, this is a little bit less tangible, but in the wording of the motion, it's a quote unquote, a place where all Quebec LGBT plus communities can feel they belong. This kind of erases migrant queer populations from this designation and if anything, the village is most important to those fleeing countries where they are not safe to be themselves. And so focusing just on Quebec LGBT plus communities kind of erases the whole point of the village in the first place. The thing is, is that any type of modern memorialization needs to take into account that Canada's LGBTQ plus communities are racially and culturally diverse, and all campaigns to honor these sites need to be inclusive of these communities as well. I now want to focus on a group that has made leaps and bounds for this type of conservation. It's called the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project. The main goal of it is to broaden people's knowledge of LGBT history beyond Stonewall and to specifically place that history in a geographical context. The project stemmed from a map that was created by Andrew Dolcart, uh, who was an architectural historian and preservation professor at Columbia in New York, uh, Ken Lusbader, a historic preservation consultant, and Jay Shockley, a former senior historian at the New York City Landmarks Preservation Committee. Um, and in 1994, they basically created what was then the United States' first map for LGBT historic sites, which were all in New York City. And here's Ken again, one of the co-founders of this project, who we've heard throughout this episode describing the genesis of the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project. The, the genesis of the project or the, the um, goes back decades where I was a graduate student at the Columbia Historic Preservation Program and I was in class listening to how um, historic preservation can tell multiple narratives and how you can use the built environment to tell stories about African-American history, Chinese-American history, labor history, social histories, and so forth. And as a Greenwich Village resident, I became sort of frustrated, but at the same time challenged by saying, well, why can't you tell LGBT history through uh, Greenwich Village? Fast forward to about 2014, I had been working with colleagues um, who are also historic preservationists uh, for Stonewall 25, and we did a map. But then in 2014, we said, let's do something more um, robust and really look at New York City and start a survey. And there was a grant opportunity through the federal government, the National Park Service, to increase diversity on the National Register. So we applied, and we were pleased that we received the grant to um, get five nominations uh, related to LGBT history on the National Register. And at the time of the grant application, only two of the 93,000 more or less sites on the National Register were related to LGBT history. So um, we were sort of helping increase that diversity. And that grant helped us leverage additional funding and then we officially started the project in 2015. The New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project is actually the first of its kind initiative to document historic and cultural sites associated with the LGBT community in New York City. The main form of it is a map-based archive, which is based on Andrew, Ken, and Jay's 25 years 
of research and advocacy with the aim to make, quote, invisible history visible. And the project is a growing trend to preserve more places that have significance for underrepresented populations. So like I mentioned earlier, there was the release of the 1,200-page study that was released in 2016 that recognized, quote, American history has long focused on its celebrations of straight white men. And just to put that into numbers, I mean, we do have this, I guess, a little bit better of a 14 out of 90,000 compared to Canada, but LGBT people in the United States make up about 5 to 10% of the U.S. population but there's slightly more than 0.0001% of historic monuments that are dedicated to this population. This also brings into question what should be considered queer heritage and what can be realistically conserved or designated. So for instance, parks and public washrooms are pretty integral to queer history as cruising sites, as well as old low-key bars and clubs, but the current surge of real estate development is eradicating these historical meeting places. But preserving a public bathroom is probably impossible. I mean, it seems kind of silly, but it is actually pretty important. Like, even a plaque outside of a... I don't know. Like, I, I'm trying to think of something that would make tangible sense for preserving a public bathroom, but I don't think there is one. But it's sad, though, because they have been a huge part of our culture and our history. One of the earliest lesbian bars in Canada called The Continental as like a tough working class joint that was in Chinatown in Toronto at the corner of Dundas and Elizabeth Street, but it's long been replaced by a nondescript commercial building with a Starbucks. And there's others. So for instance, there's a KFC at Wellesley and Church, I know, a KFC in Toronto where in 1983, the AIDS Committee of Toronto, or ACT, which is the first HIV organization in Eastern Canada, moved into a rundown second floor office above this KFC, but now the building is going to be raised for a condo development, which is actually the one that I talked about in the second episode with the queer community spaces. But there's no recognition of the history of this, <laughs> this KFC, but also this uh, ACT, um, the AIDS Committee of Toronto, actually being in that. So having some type of recognition in the condo building is probably a value as well. And there's tons of other sites that are worthy of preservation, but Ed Jackson, the former editor of The Body Politic, which was, again, like I mentioned, the first significant queer publication in Canada, says that, To be true to our history, queer public memorialization should include places and events that highlight political activism, sexual transgressions, so things like cruising, and social dissidents. They should honor episodes of resistance and rebellion and people who led these episodes, but also traditional signposts of integration and acceptance. And he says that a site that might be worth considering for queer public memorialization could be Young and Carlton, where the queer and trans members of Black Lives Matters halted the 2016 Pride Parade. And no one can deny it was a successful use of public space, and has helped since shine a light on anti-black grievances within Pride, and it also helped demonstrate that while relationships with police have changed dramatically, if you are white and queer, they remain far from resolved for if you are black or indigenous as well as queer. These efforts are pretty easy to implement. Like, sure, a plaque might cost like a few hundred dollars, or I, mean, I don't know, maybe like a few thousand, I have no idea. But there are lists upon lists of queer places that are worthy of conservation. And I mean, you can just listen to the first episode of this podcast and you have like 20 right there. But for example, here in Montreal, one that is pretty important is the site where Moise Tellier's Apple and Cake Shop once stood, which was now a highway that cut through downtown Montreal. A plaque commemorating the potential first queer space in North America, which is an incredibly worthy and important part of queer heritage would go a long way to make invisible history visible. Ken spoke a bit about the type of criteria the New York City LGBT Historic Sites Project uses to determine what can be heritage and the challenges with recognizing all sites related to queer heritage. Well, I think if there's a collective um, 
sort of identity of cultural um, use. For example, for cruising, like the Ramble, the Rambles in Central Park has historically been a cruising area. So has Bethesda um, Terrace, which is also in Central Park. And that wasn't used by, you know, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry every so often. It was a known cruising area. So if there was a collective history and identity, that's really important. The same thing with the Greenwich Village waterfront, um, early 20th century cruising ground, um, because it was isolated. Uh, you know, you had this transient uh, sort of uh, steamer shipping lines coming in and out, men on ships who were away from home, sexual experimentation and so forth, morphing into sort of abandoned piers where people had sex in the 60s, primarily, you know, gay men, which then became um, more of a sort of uh, trans people of color, street kids uh, gathering spot. So if there's this collective history and significance, we're including them. Um, we made a point not to sort of sort of crowdsource any of the sites that we are looking at because we wanted to make sure they were significant if they had a cultural or historic impact on new york city or american history so we're including a wide range of sites whether they're cruising places of sex like bathhouses those are really important they tell really important stories of how people in New York City, for example, how to meet. You're living in tenement apartments or small spaces, shared living accommodations. You can't have sex at home for various reasons. So where do they have sex? You have sex in bathhouses. So those are really important stories that need to get told, as well as performance venues that are, it could be, you know, theaters. We're just doing a slew of theater entries to talk about the importance of the LGBT community on American theater to places of residences of individuals. So the criteria could be, you know, where did Truman Capote live when he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's? Where did, you know, Pauli Murray live when she was in New York City and had, you know, was doing important law research? So those are the, the range of sites that we're trying to include and have a level of significance that, again, holistically tells a story of, you know, whether it be, theater, arts, medicine, cruising, but using buildings or sites um, to and, and parks to tell that story. That brings this episode and this series to a close. I just want to say thank you to listeners who tuned in from everywhere, and I hope that in the future I can bring this podcast back. Over the course of this podcast, I really learned a lot from Montreal being home to one of the first reported queer spaces in North America, to our own Stonewall moments and the rich history of queer activism in this city, in Quebec and in Canada, to uncovering the changes affecting queer spaces in urban areas and around the world, how the process of coming out affects our mental health and experience with loneliness, and finally, with this episode, the challenges and problems with heritage preservation of queer spaces. I want to say a huge thank you to people who contributed to this podcast. It was a, such a great opportunity to speak with you and to have you share your contributions with me and with all of you guys. I also want to say a thank you to Celine Thomas at the Samuel Center for helping a little bit with the production of this podcast.
So I do want to say that Montreal Pride is wrapping up this weekend, so make sure you attend some of the last events if you haven't already. All of the event information and the information for the parade on Sunday can be found on their website, which again will be linked in the description of this episode. Also, I know I shouted this out in the last episode, but make sure to subscribe to Do You Queer What I Queer, as I will be appearing on their podcast sometime in the fall. And that's it for me, everyone. But as always, if you have any comments or just want to follow along with what I'm up to, feel free to email the podcast email at qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at nopo.png or Twitter at Noah D. Powers. And again, thank you for listening to this podcast series, everyone. I appreciate all the support and hopefully you're able to learn and appreciate everything that comes with queer spaces and history a bit more. This podcast is produced, written, and edited by Noah Powers with support from the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. The cover art for this podcast was designed and painted by my super talented friend Morgan Davis, and you can find her work on Instagram at Morgan Davis Art or Redbubble, both of which are linked in the notes of this episode. QHQT would like to acknowledge the generous support of Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for funding this project through their Rising Youth Grant. The music for this podcast is Sunset by ESCP, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.